Hello, welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is Great Big History Podcast. In this episode of History 101, we do China, geography, and early politics. So, the geography of ancient China. It's located at the eastern edge of Asia. So it's far away from the other civilizations we've talked about. It's separated by the Himalayas from India. It's separated by the Iranian Plateau and the, the Central Asian Steppe from Mesopotamia and Egypt and Europe. And so what effects does that have? Well, it's isolated is the first effect. It's going to have to grow up in this isolation, separate from other civilizations. Egypt, Mesopotamia, India, Europe are connected by trade, by war, by immigration. I mean, Alexander is going to walk from one through all the others. But he can't reach China. It's too far away. And so what does that mean for China? Well, it means it's going to grow up in isolation. So in some things, it will be ahead. And we'll see this throughout the courses, the History 101 and 102, that in some things, China will invent. Having been completely isolated, they will be ahead in certain things. But in other things, they will be behind. Whether it's technologically or culturally, on certain innovations, they will be behind. And that all comes from this isolation from the other major civilizations. Now, that will change under the Han. And we'll discuss that. But China will literally create a connection to these other civilizations. China also has two rivers, like Mesopotamia, like India. It has the yellow and the Yangtze. So what does that mean? It means wealth. Two rivers, better than one river. Unless it's the Nile. Then the Nile is totally different. Because um, the Nile is that rich. You know, The Nile is like three or four rivers equivalent in wealth. But two rivers, better than one river. So China is going to be, from the very beginning, wealthy. Why? Because water equals agriculture. Agriculture equals cities, cities equal trade, trade equals money, money equals culture, right? We've done this in every, every one, right? The more water you have, the more agriculture you have, the more agriculture you have, the more cities you have, the more cities you have, the more trade you have, the more trade you have, the more money you have, the more money you have, the more culture you buy, the more leisure time, the more people don't have to work as farmers, they can do other specialized jobs. So the more culture you have, so the more advanced your civilization is. But China is going to have a problem, and that problem is going to be true all the way until the 17th century. In fact, you could say it's going to be all the way until the 20th century. And it's those Western and Northern nomad barbarians. The problem of having those two rivers is that they go to the Himalayas, they go west to east. They go right through Chinese civilization is going to develop between those two rivers. In fact, the Grand Canal is going to be built to connect those two rivers. That's how important the, the kind of like 
China is kind of like Mesopotamia. China could be named Mesopotamia. It's the land between the two rivers. Now, it will grow out of that. It will grow both north and south, especially to the south of those rivers. But when it develops, when it starts, it's between those two rivers. That's a problem because of where the barbarians are, where the nomads are. They're in the west or they're in the north. Which means if they migrate, all they have to do is hit one of those two rivers and they follow it right into the middle of Chinese civilization, right to the heart of Chinese civilization. So China has always got this problem of constant invasion. That's different from Mesopotamia because the nomadic barbarians are north of the Caucasus in the Ukraine or in Ukraine. I shouldn't say the Ukraine, it's Ukraine or they're beyond the Persian steppe, they're to the east, they're to the northeast, which means if they hit the Tigris, it's not that big of a deal because they could hit the Tigris anywhere along the Tigris. So they might hit Sumer or they might hit Akkad. And the Tarsus Mountains separating Asia Minor from Mesopotamia is a pretty good barrier keeping out invaders. The Hittites will occasionally come across, but it forms this boundary. That's not true in China. In China, those rivers allow barbarians to come right, come just straight right into the center. You just follow those rivers and soon, and you're going to hit Chinese cities, and you're going to hit the frontier cities first, then you're going to hit the major cities, and then you're going to hit the capital cities. One after the other. And that means constant invasion. So what do we see of Chinese imperial history? China, like India, is so old as a culture, as a continuous culture, that we see a pattern. And that is one China. And what happens to that one China? It breaks up. It breaks into pieces. And those pieces may break up too. And what do those pieces do? Whether they're big pieces or lots of little pieces, they go to war against each other. And that is a period called the Warring States. Now, this will happen between almost every Chinese dynasty. When the one dynasty ends, it may be a long time, like the, like the um, Three Kingdoms period, or it may be very short, what the Han Dynasty had. Or the Qing Dynasty, the Manchu Dynasty, the period between the Ming and the Qing. It may be very short, but it does happen. China will break up into pieces. Those pieces then fight each other, but with the purpose of recreating China. The question is never, should there be China? The question is, who should run it? And so we have plenty of letters during Warring States periods where one person, one, one would-be king, one in the future, one would-be emperor, will say, um, the true emperor of China, or just the emperor of China, to the fake emperor of China, or calling oneself emperor of China. And that's how they would refer. They're all, like, when they break up, 
We may call them different names, but they all thought of themselves as China. In fact, we live in this period right now. We live in a warring states period, quote unquote. There's no physical war, but there we live in a world of two places that call themselves China. We have the People's Republic of China, what you think of as China, as mainland China. What used to be called when I was a kid, communist China. But from the sea to the borders of Pakistan and Afghanistan, China, the force of Russia and Siberia, all the way out to Afghanistan, Pakistan, that's what you think of when you say China. But there's also the Republic of China, which goes also by the name of Taiwan. Now, they both call themselves China. They both want a united China, one China. The question is, who will run it? And that's, if you read foreign policy magazines, if you read the literature, it's, this is the question. And increasingly as mainland China's, the People's Republic of China's economic power has increased since the 1980s, before like the 1980s, it looked like Taiwan using democracy might reabsorb mainland China, not physically like through a war that kind of ended back in the fifties, that, that hope that ended with the Korean war, that any chance of invading, of using American armies and invading communist China and, uh, pushing Mao out. And I, I, you know, whatever these fever dreams of the 1950s were, the idea was that communism in the eighties, like it did in Europe would fail you would have democracy and the Taiwanese democratic parties would be poised to kind of export democracy to mainland China and that they would win. And then there an economic process of capitalist democratic, um, East Asian capitalism, democracy, that's kind of in South Korea. That's kind of in Japan would take hold. And that Taiwan would effectively export its capitalist democratic culture to mainland China. That dream died when mainland China started having 10% growth rates. So now the question is, what will happen? Will mainland China, communist China, invade Taiwan to reunite it? History would say that's a possibility. Will the United States fight to protect Taiwan, which we've kind of sworn to do since 1946? Well, not actually since 1946, but since 1949. Um, I mean, we have a fleet between in the Taiwan Straits in the between mainland China and Taiwan. Um, will it be peaceful? Will it not? But there is what's called the one China policy that both Taiwan and communist China, mainland China subscribe to. And that is that China is one country and it should be united and other countries shouldn't really get involved in determining how that happens. 
That's the idea. And that's a warring states. That's where we are now. So just like with the India situation, we're living in a world where, where the subcontinent is breaking up and continuing to break up into smaller and smaller pieces. In Chinese imperial history, we're in a period where we have multiple Chinas that are in some process of reunification. How long that will take is a question of politics that I do not know. What form it will take is, again, a question of military politics and economics that I do not know. But the history would say it will happen sooner or later in some form or another, because that's always the process. We see it again and again and again and again. So in ancient China, what kind of legitimacy do we have? What kind of politics do we have? And what we have is the mandate of heaven. This is very simplistic. This is going to be a very simplistic take on the mandate of heaven. But the idea is it's the mandate of heaven that gives you legitimacy. Now, interestingly, the mandate of heaven is invented by usurpers, by revolutionaries, by people who took over the government. They took over and then they justified their rebellion, their revolution, by creating the concept of the mandate of heaven or elevating it if it had already been invented or as was an idea. They now made it the idea of legitimacy. So how does this work? How it works is it gives you absolute power. The leader of China, whether it's a chief or a king or later an emperor, has absolute power, can do whatever that person wants. It's usually a man. It can be occasionally a woman, but it's usually a man. And they have absolute power. They could do anything. But there is a limitation. You can only use that absolute power to protect or improve people's lives. So the idea is you could do whatever you want in this band to help people. So if you use your absolute power to have like a harem, to have like sex slaves, to have like, um, uh, you know, citizen slaves work for you and entertain you, you know, like Maximus in Gladiator, are you not entertained, right? If you, you do that, you're breaking the mandate of heaven. You're breaking legitimacy. So you are given absolute power in order to, it is justified if you are protecting and improving people's lives. And you can see this in nature. This is one of those things about the mandate of heaven. You could see it. Government serves people in trouble. So what do you mean see it in nature? Well, this is an ancient concept that the health of the emperor equals the health of the land. That good emperors bring good land. That's King Arthur. You know, Europeans have the same concept as well. So, you know, the during King Arthur, when King Arthur is, is happy, uh, there's plenty of f uh, food. There's plenty, plenty of uh, animals being born. Uh, there's no ill. There's no sickness. There's no plague. Everything's great. And then King Arthur discovers that his wife and his best friend are having an affair. 
he goes into, he has a nervous breakdown, goes into a deep depression. And when he goes into the deep depression, the land starts to suffer. Plague enters the world. Animals start to die in large numbers or are born with birth defects. Um, we see this in the Bible too. With the years of plenty versus the years of fallow. So, I mean, the best example in, in the Bible is the, the Exodus story, is the ten plagues, right? Those plagues don't happen if Pharaoh lets the people go, lets the Hebrews go. He doesn't. He's a bad guy. He angers the Jewish God. And so the plagues happen and hurt the people, hurt the people of Egypt, right? So lots of cultures have this concept that you could see it. And the idea is government serves people in trouble. Good government helps people. We have this concept. The worst thing that happened to George W. Bush in his popularity was Katrina. Why? Because rightly or wrongly, he was viewed as not helping people who were drowning, as not helping New Orleans. Right? Famously, Kanye got up on TV with 100 million people watching and said, George W. Bush doesn't care for black people. True or not, enough people watched that and said, uh-huh, that's true. And then there's a financial crisis a year later, year and a half later, where the banks imploded. So what happened in 2008? Democrats won everything. Because if you're not helping people who are in trouble, the answer is, why do we need you? Why do we need you? Why should you have this much power? And so if you cannot help people in trouble, if, the, the, if there's famine, if there's plagues, if you're not helping those people during famines and plagues, that is the loss of legitimacy, the loss of the mandate of heaven, and that equals revolution. It inspires others to overthrow you and create a new dynasty, which then we go through that system. Break up, warring saints, because if one family is saying, we need a new dynasty, other families are saying it, too. So we have the breakup, we have the warring states, and then we have reunification. So it's not that a hurricane happens. It's not that Hurricane Katrina happened. That's not the mandate. Of, that's not the loss of the mandate of heaven. Hurricanes happen. People understand nature happens. It's good governments can help people while bad governments don't. The most famous photo that came out of Hurricane Katrina with George W. Bush, with the president of the United States, was him looking out a window as he flew over New Orleans. Rightly or wrongly, fair or not, that became the image. That he, he was flying over, he wasn't involved, he didn't care. Did that have to be the most famous photo that came out? No. Imagine if it was this photo, right? George W. Bush, President of the United States. 
shirtless, six-pack abs, up to his waist in the muck of New Orleans, right? Six feet of flood water. He's up to his waist. He has a sleeping African-American baby in one arm. He's holding on to a elderly Hispanic woman in the other. And in his teeth is the ladder from the helicopter lifting them off the flooded, decaying, destroyed roof. Does Kanye say George W. Bush doesn't care for black people if that's the photo? No. Kanye says this is the blackest president we've ever had. So it's not what happens. It's how the government reacts to it. Does it care? Does it not care? And the mandate of heaven says, you can do whatever you want. And a lot of that is fun. But you have to care. You have to help people in trouble. Especially in trouble. And that's where we're going to leave off for now. We're going to have three um, sections for uh, China. And so our next section is going to be philosophy. It's going to be Confucius. So we're going to break them up into nice little digestible bits. So take care. Be safe. See you soon.